as we are continuing our series in 2 Timothy on the scriptures, I would like you to first turn this morning to Matthew 25. I'm sure probably a quite familiar passage to you. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Remember what Scripture says, God says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, and thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also, they also will answer, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now back over to 2 Timothy 3. Reading this morning from verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 2. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 2. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and in of Jesus of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that we would understand this morning that with thy word before us, we stand before the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we understand what it means to live out of the Spirit-breathed Word of God. We ask that our paths would be in the path of His righteousness. In Christ's name, amen. We read the Bible. Why read the Bible? To what end do I read the Bible? To what end does God give Holy Scripture to the people in His church? As we begin to examine the incredible teaching of Paul to Timothy in verses 16 and 17 of our text, I want to begin this morning by making an observation about verse 17 and then in the weeks ahead move back to verse 16. I understand the anticipation of probably all of you to take apart the four phrases, those four famous phrases in verse 16. For teaching, or as some versions have, doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training or instruction in righteousness. But after investigating both liberal and conservative commentaries on this passage, I came away with this particular observation. In order to truly understand verse 16, you must understand where Paul wants Timothy and the church to end, to end. Let me try to put it more simply. You must understand the goal in order to see the means to that goal. For example, a number of years ago, 
two couples with young boys asked me to design an individual basketball program for their children. I immediately asked, what is the goal? What is the goal? High school basketball or college basketball? For there is a real difference concerning how I will design your son's program. You see, the goal, the end, determines the means to that end. To the point, is reading the Bible an exercise to check the box of daily personal piety? Or is the goal to read the Bible to enhance your wisdom, your wisdom to blossom in your salvation through faith in Christ so that your present life and your future eternal life in the presence of God and Christ has all the joy, has all the joy of living in union with Christ forever, forever. I'm keeping this in mind. Let me remind you of a point which can be beneficial when we read and interpret the Bible. In a previous message, I suggested to you that it can be helpful to begin a study of a certain book of the Bible by reading the last chapter first. Read the last chapter first. And then as you take your Bible study of from the first chapter onward, you will always understand where the author is going. You will see that. And it will help you understand how the text is being formulated. So you begin, you see, you begin at the end to understand the beginning. So the same principle is good for us to see here in this particular verse. Verse 17, begin with verse 17 in order to understand the riches, the riches of verse 16. Now let's raise this question. Can the practical instruction of Holy Scripture be a means to a goal, to an end. Let me place before you the question very directly. Does God give us the Bible, give us the Bible, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work? Verse 17. Indeed, Paul is instructing Timothy that God gives the Bible to his people in order for them to meet their very end in terms of their Christian life. But here is the serious question. But what is the end that is in view for God's children? What is the end? How do you see your end? 
How do you live your life towards its end? Well, you see, is it that Timothy and Christ's church are equipped for good works which embrace a happy and a good life, a life of good virtues here on earth? Is that what we are doing in terms of our end on the basis of both liberal and conservative commentaries? This may be exactly what you conclude. The Bible is to produce complete, capable, proficient, qualified Christians who have been equipped with the necessary works to live the good and happy life on earth, the virtuous life, too often, of course, by human designated agendas. Basically, Western culture, even commentaries, can't get away from reading Aristotle and Plato's view of ethics and placing it on the Bible. It's one of the greatest dangers to all of us. And we don't even know it's happening. Let me spell it out. One group of liberal commentators maintain that the emphasis in verses 16 and 17 is not that the Bible is God-breathed or inspired. Rather, the emphasis is upon the idea that the Bible is useful. The Bible is useful. As you can understand, the liberals are not concerned about a divinely inspired Bible, that every word in Scripture is the product of the actual breath of God. In their judgment, such a view of Scripture is myth, is myth. Since the liberal rejects the divine nature of the biblical text, for them the Bible only has importance as a practical and useful book of instruction towards a certain end. So what is the end for the liberal, for the liberal Christian, so to speak? When the liberal translates verse 17, you can just look at the phrase and you can guess exactly where they're going to go. You're going to be able to guess exactly where they go. And looking at the commentaries, I was not disappointed in the sense of knowing exactly where they were going to go. Where do they go? The liberals translate verse 17. He cannot avoid that the reading of that verse must fit into his so-called social gospel. Simply stated... The Bible serves the church to address and correct the social, political, and economic injustices in the world. According to the liberal, if you understand the practical, the practical usage, useful message of the Bible correctly, then the Bible equips you, equips you, each of you, 
to bring equality and justice for all the oppressed in the world. That is the underlying mission of the church. On the other hand, conservative commentators do not make a contrast between the inspiration of Scripture and the usefulness of Scripture. They understand that we must hold to a high view of Scripture in order for the Scripture to be truly helpful in the practical life of the believer. Indeed, conservatives understand that the Holy Scripture provides an infallible service to the people of God, both in their doctrinal life and in their practical life. But in light of verse 17, we must also ask the conservative, to what end? To what end? And for many conservatives, their interpretation is somewhat vague. It seems that many of them interpret verse 17 under the notion of personal and individual sanctification and the service of good works. In other words, the usefulness of the Holy Scripture is for the activity and practice of good works. And what does that look like, even among those who are conservative so often? What does that look like? At this point, things become really fuzzy because you begin to hear in conservative circles many of the same themes that you hear in liberal circles. Exactly the same themes. Living in conservative circles, I have heard it all my life. The same themes seem to come through. The implementation of social programs, of ministry and justice. Get your church involved in projects of social justice to the oppressed in our country and in foreign lands. Now please hear me on this. Such areas of ministry are not necessarily wrong if, if correctly placed in the full counsel of God's gospel. Keep that in the back of your head. <laughs> However, The problem here is that many conservatives set their hearts upon the human implementation of transforming the social and cultural world around them. If you are truly perceptive, you realize that conservatives also see their end a form of social gospel, but it is draped in their conservative values, not liberal values. And way too often, good works of self-gratification. Self-gratification. Look what my church is doing. Look what I do. 
in terms of my good works. Sadly, even for the conservative, the Bible is viewed through a lens that provides the equipment to change our spiritual persons and cultural environments into an agenda that is dangerously close, if not already there, in works righteousness. In works righteousness. In other words, the Bible is a program guide, a proof text to make me a better person to make me a better person in changing my own personal environment as well as the social and cultural environment. It is more, you see, even among so many conservatives, the gospel is more about me than it is about Christ. About Christ. Indeed, those who graduate from the so-called useful instruction of Holy Scripture claim that they are ready to make an impact in the world. All the conservative Christian institutions that are celebrating graduations this weekend, I would bet that the vast majority, the vast majority rallied around the phrase, go out there, students, and make an impact into the world. That's what it's all about your personal impact. Indeed, after all, (laughs) that is what it's all about, isn't it? Whether liberal or conservative, that I make an impact to change the world. As I often would ask, how's it working out? <laughs> we have heard dissent, that theme in Christian conservative colleges for decades. How's it working out? You see, to the end, most liberals and conservatives end and at the same point. This is why it has been said, listen carefully, this is why it has been said that conservative evangelicals are always one step, always one step from becoming liberal. Have you ever seen in your own lifetime a liberal church become conservative? Think. 
Which way do they always go? Do you know that most of the colleges and universities in this country at their founding was Calvinistic? Were reformed? There's only nine confessional accredited reform colleges left in this nation. Only nine. Both sides see the focus and usefulness of Holy Scripture is upon the individual child of God who is to be engaged in a dangerously close works righteousness model for the sake of a personal and cultural virtuous society. Oh, congregation, is it not imperative that we get verse 16 in the text correct in order to uncover the riches of verse 16? Now here is my thesis straight out. Verse 17 is primarily pointing Timothy and the church to the last judgment. Got it? Verse 17 is primarily pointing Timothy and the church to the last judgment. Only one commentator that I read even alluded to this observation. And yet I think I will be, it will become clear and obvious to you that this is what the verse is all about as we examine, as we examine the verse in its context. In its context. Let me begin with the most disputed word that appears in the Greek text. The word that is translated complete in your ESV. Some versions perfect or thoroughly. This particular Greek word, artios, only appears in the New Testament in this verse. This is the only place it appears. It is a derivative of a Greek word that appears often in the New Testament. That word is artai. Is artai. Usually translated by the word now. That's all you need to see here. Or the word that denotes immediacy of a situation. Congregation. I must admit that I am perplexed but not surprised. The biblical commentators, well-versed in the Greek language, opt to discover in obscure secular Greek literature the justification of putting an ethical component upon this Greek word, artios, in order to fit into their preconceived ideas of social justice that they want to bring out in this particular text. It seems to come quickly. However, I cannot help but ask what seems to be simple and obvious. Why not stay with the etymology of the word 
which is found in the New Testament, and translate verse 17 in the following literal sense, that the man of God may be now, if you want to write in your Bible, that the man of God may be now equipped for every good work. The biblical notion is that we are now in the day of salvation. There is no delay, Timothy. There is no delay, Timothy. There's no delay, congregation. Today, right now, is the day of salvation. You are presently standing and living in the last judgment. You are already, right now, being judged. Being judged. Have you been equipped for acquittal before your judge? Are you? Are you? Are you equipped for acquittal before your judge? Congregation, if you think I have gone wacky, now don't answer that question. <laughs> Look at the context. Go back to verse 1 in chapter 3. Look at 3.1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. That's what he's telling Timothy. All the commentators that I looked at miss this context. In 3.1, except the one illusion, illusion that I sp spoke of earlier. Now look at 4.1 of your text. As you keep in mind that the original text has no verse or chapter divisions, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing of his, and his kingdom... Why does Paul bring into play the aspect that Christ is the judge at this point? Because it flows from the previous verses. Yes, indeed, don't miss this. Verse 17 presupposes understanding for one or to lit. Let's put it the other way. Understanding 4.1 presupposes verse 17 and verse 16 as well as, as well as 3.1. Timothy and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us now stand in the last day. You're in it. You're in it. Verse 17 is not about the personal, social, cultural agendas 
of transformation of our world around us by works. It is about how your works, your works, stand before the presence and the appearance of Christ, who is your eternal judge. Paul is placing Timothy and the church in the immediate context of the last judgment. If it is the last judgment, what kind of good works does Paul therefore have in mind in verse 17? Think clearly here. Paul is pushing Timothy and the church back to the profound words of our Lord before his departure from the earth in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. That's why I read that text. In that text, Jesus Christ tells us that the sheep, you who are believers, the church, are acquitted, are acquitted in the context of their good works. Is Roman Catholicism correct about being saved by meritorious works? Listen to the context carefully from Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 34. Come you blessed of my Father. Remember, this is the sheep. This is you, the church. Inherit the kingdom. What? Here comes the important phrase. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Are you getting it? Good works isn't your agenda. Good works isn't your agenda. By the liberal or the conservative. Good works is rooted in the sovereign God in terms of his sheep, you, from the foundation of the world before you came into existence. (laughs) No merit here. Christ's sovereign declaration of election by grace is the preamble, preamble which corresponds to the words of Paul in the book of Ephesians, one of the most beautiful and probably the most classic verse in the New Testament about good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You know it, don't you? You embrace it, do you not? (laughs) For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
the good works that you walk in have been decreed upon your person by a sovereign God prior to the foundation of the world. Now, you can see from there the Bible is not Roman Catholic. The Bible is not about personal agendas of good works by liberals and conservatives. No, Scripture and our confession are clear. Good works are solely, solely from the Spirit of Christ. Our good works are a product of Christ's Spirit working in us to their end. Their end is eternal life. Our eternal inheritance of Christ himself. The good works that we do are the works of Christ's Spirit. We bring no trophies before our judge. Rather, our works are His works, and His works are laid out carefully and perfectly in His Word, which finds, which finds a residence, a residence in our soul. Keep in mind that Christ's word in Scripture is a product of His Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes that word in the Bible and places it in all of your hearts. All of your hearts as believers so that our works are the product of Christ. The Spirit's Word, the Bible, and the application of the Spirit in our hearts. Now you can see, if you have been listening carefully, why this can be considered and understood as a Pentecost. Sunday message. There is nothing, there is nothing here that claims the audacity of salvation by the manufactured agenda and activity of humanity. All such claims fall short of the glory of God and in the final analysis come under his judgment of condemnation. You see, verse 17 is about your final stance. Your final stance. 
in the word of God in which you have become wise. Back to verse 15. Where you have become wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that truth, in that truth, you are standing in the last judgment right now. It's going on right now at this very moment. Verse 17 is about God's activity in you through his word as he frees you from judgment unto blessing. Did you hear that? Nope. Some of you missed this. I'm going to repeat it. What should he hear? Verse 17 is about God's activity in you through his word as he frees you from judgment unto blessing. It is not about your human manufactured agenda to make a social and cultural impact in this temporal world. Paul is instructing Timothy. Paul is instructing all of us in the church throughout all ages about eternal, eternal matters. Are you reading the Bible with the consciousness that you, every time you sit down and read the Bible, are you reading it with the consciousness that you are standing before your judge, Jesus, who is your end, your end, even now? If so, then you understand that the Bible is imminently useful and practical for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. May all of us, all of us this morning, as we gather here, declare and proclaim that we are the workmanship, the workmanship of Christ's holy, inscripturated word of the Spirit so that we see Christ in all his glory, all his glory even now. Do not turn to the cultural agenda for your good works. Turn only to the word of God that the Spirit of God has written to understand your good works in Christ.
and to his glory. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for the spirit of the living God that not only writes is the final author of Scripture, but that as the final author of Scripture applies that word in the historical acts that have occurred which the Scripture record about our redemption and accomplished redemption in Christ to our hearts. May we live out of that word which we ourselves are the workmanship prepared before the foundation of the world. We ask, O Lord, that we would live by thy Spirit in and out of thy word. In Christ's name, amen.